welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is from the Sword of the Spirit Bible Conference. This is a question and answer session from Sunday the 27th of February 2011 with Pastor Larry T. Curtis and Brother Brian Beaver. Father, we thank you, Lord, again for all the blessings that have been ours this weekend. Uh, thank you, Lord, for uh, those that have still been able to remain and be here uh, this afternoon and for those that will be here this evening. Uh, Lord, now as we go through these questions that have been uh, asked by uh, different people, we just pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to be able to give answers that would be uh, a help and encouragement to those that have asked. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As always, there's a couple of very personal ones in here. First two are very closely related for you, brother. You can imagine what they're dealing with. Yeah. Somebody wants your barber's name. <laughs> Who's your barber? The second one's a bit more spiritual, though. Is your hairstyle according to God's will? <laughs> that one even had the nerve to sign their name to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I guess the answer to that question is me to the first question, who's my barber? That's me. Cut my own hair. I, I learned to do it when I was in the Marine Corps. And and uh, the second question is, absolutely, it's the will of God. <laughs> For me, God's will is different uh, in in specific in everybody's life, but it's just God's will for me to not have much hair, I guess. Okay, well, this next one, if you can't answer it in five seconds because it's about that important, then I'm moving on. <laughs> if you were a tin food, what would you be and why? Pork and beans. Timing up. <laughs> Meat and veggie, man. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say sauerkraut. <laughs> well, the preacher and I may have a fight on this one, disagree, because he thinks there's going to be chicken in heaven, I know. <laughs> I ain't figured out if there ain't no death, how you going to eat that chicken with it alive? <laughs> and how long is it going to stay alive if you eat it? <laughs> Somebody wants to know if there's going to be any uh, profiteroles and gateau in heaven. <laughs> and will we ever be able to get full? <laughs> I hope so and probably not. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure which they're referring to, but I'll answer it. Okay. I read about boldness, and you probably spoke about <laughs> boldness, and somebody said, you said we should pray for the spirit of boldness. Does that mean that we'll all have to end up looking like Brian? <laughs> you could only hope. <laughs> no comment. No comment. <laughs> I can't rightly remember that one. What's your favorite dish, just so we can know what to cook when you come over? Somebody's uh, planning on inviting somebody over. <laughs> my favorite dish? Man, I don't know. What? <laughs> yeah, but they don't know that. That's from our country. Country-style steak and gravy and mashed potatoes. My kids know what it is because I fix it for them. Hallelujah. I got I got a witness back there in the corner. Yes, I see that hand. Yes, amen. Yeah. Okay. But here in here in England, it's shepherd's pie. Oh man. Well, whatever you call it, it's good. This one's way beyond anything we can ever hope. Why and because. <laughs> amen. Now for more serious stuff. Is there a country in the world that begins with X? that needs missionaries. <laughs> Mike, where's your book? <laughs> Operation well, World? You're, you're a wiser man than I am, is there? And I want to know where it's at. No. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. Missed your chance to be a missionary. That's right. Tim actually signed this one. <laughs> Do 
Will there be time for eating lots of food in heaven? <laughs> or somebody, somebody signed his name that. to it. <laughs> somebody did that to you. They'll be all I, found, I finally met a lad that can eat as much or more than my son. I've watched my son eat till he literally pass out. But I watched Tim do it, and he didn't pass out. So I've got to give a, a round of applause to Tim. Yeah. <laughs> And on a more spiritual note, we've got all of eternity. If that's not long enough, I don't know what you're going to do. Yeah. Okay, this one is uh, certainly more serious. Uh, how can I recognize if a desire, spiritual desire, to serve God in a specific way came from God or is just my will? Well, I would say, I would say first of all that I think for most of us in all honesty, on a natural level, one of the hardest things you'll ever do in your life, separating your will, as long as you still have the old flesh, and God's will. You'll never, ever, ever find it without the Lord having control that we've heard so much about this weekend. I've certainly taught our people here in recent times that that is part of the absolute necessity in our lives of the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's only one way that you're going to know God's will in things and that's for God to have enough control of your life to where that your spiritual you is stronger than the fleshly you. Um, you know, I know people have all kinds of different ideas, but I, I believe that scripturally that we can support the fact that Jesus Christ, when he left this world, he's the one that promised to send the Holy Spirit, which when you want to come all around to it, that is Jesus alive in us, God. And, of course, he sent it that his work could be carried forward. And it's the Holy Spirit that convicts us. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us to God. It's the Holy Spirit that quickens and makes God's word alive that we can even be saved. He's the one that, that brings that life to our lives. And I believe that everybody, the moment they truly put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's when the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place. And we're baptized into the family of God. We become part of his family but I believe the filling of the Holy Spirit is a responsibility of every Christian that should take place daily and continually in our lives. And it's not us getting more of the Spirit. We even have to be careful. A lot of even songs uh, speak of him almost as if you can get more of it or more of him. And, and he is a person. You either have him or you don't have him. Uh, but he needs us. He needs all of us. Uh, and the filling of the Spirit is is truly God having control of our lives and uh and you're 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 fighting a you're fighting a tough battle i mean i could tell you you know a couple of spiritual things like you know read your bible and pray those things we ought to be doing anyway and you'll never know it without that but when it comes down to truly distinguishing between god's will for your life and your will for your life unless you've truly yielded to the point that the holy spirit has complete control of your life you're going to be fighting a tough battle, and I believe that you're going to probably struggle with certainty of, of knowing that. But when he has control, I can promise you this. I can promise you this as sure as I'm sitting here. You can know God's will without a shadow of a doubt. You can know his presence in your life. You can know when it's him that's speaking to you and that you're going the path that he wants you to go. But that's only, only... Uh, when he has complete control. We've sung it. We've talked about surrendering all. We've talked about him having his way. Um, but that needs to be a reality in our lives every day of our lives. Um, Psalm, David said in Psalm 37, verse 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee des the desires of thine heart. Um, I believe that verse is basically saying it. If you'll delight yourself in God, I believe the greatest desire you'll have is to not only know His will but do it. So your desires will become His, and His will become yours, and it'll almost be married together. So delight yourself in the Lord. We all know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We ought to. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll what? He'll direct your path. So as long as your focus and desire is as a Christian... Now, young people, we're all humans, and there's, there's weak points in our life. We all have those valleys. But I believe as a Christian we ought to really, really intently seek after delighting ourselves in Him. 
And I think when you do that, you'll you'll know and distinguish between what you really want. I mean, he didn't say he'll give you the wants of your heart. He said he'll give you the desires, and I believe the ultimate desire of a of a believer, whether he's five years into his spiritual walk or twenty five years into his spiritual walk, he's he's growing, and every person's growing until they go to glory. So and spiritually, so you'll know the difference between. I really believe that you'll discern between those two. Most of the time, our will's selfish anyway, and God's is not. Okay, the next question deals with a specific verse. It says, how does Deuteronomy 25.11 reflect God's love? Deuteronomy 25.11 says, when men strive together one with another, and the wife of the one draweth near for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smiteth him, and putteth forth her hand, and taketh him by the secrets... I guess they're concluding the next verse, which continues the sentence. Then thou shalt cut off her hand, thine eye shall not pity her. The question is, how does, how does that reflect God's love? I guess, I guess the, the question you're trying to ask is, if just in this one specific case, or sometimes what seems to be the harshness, harshness of God's law, uh, how we compare that to his love. I don't know if... The persons here that ask it, if they, if they're, uh, if that's the idea of what they're, they're asking, uh, is it? Uh, how do we see God's love in, in uh, sometimes what appears to be the harshness of, of God's law? Uh, in this case, the wife is trying to protect the husband. When she uh, strikes one that's attacking her husband, then her hand is to be cut off. Uh, well, it's just following, you know, passages on the Mosaic Law and, and, and a lot of the different regulations that, that, are, that are found in Scripture that they operated under uh, It is in that whole days. That whole passage, I guess the first, well, the, the whole chapter 25 deals with divisions, controversies between two parties. Because verse 1, 2, uh, 7, excuse me, 7, 9, uh, 11... For 15 is talking about when there's a dispute or something's happening. Um, to be quite honest, that's a, I ain't going to be one of these guys that just says, well, I'm going to try to, you know, ex, you know, do some exposit, exposition on this verse right before you. I'm going to be honest. I'd have to study that out a little bit before I gave you a right answer about it. But I will get back with you. I, I just don't know right now exactly. Yeah, and I, and I and I need I mean, to say this that much much of what uh, we look at the Old Testament law and the living under the law is very different from us living under grace now. Yeah, and it takes some some serious studying a lot of times and uh, uh, to work out these things. And uh, um, again, I I'm not sure what you know how the, how the question if it's being asked about the whole the whole controversy, which is why this this has come about, or if it's just the the uh, the aspect of uh, it's not actually until the next verse that the wife is losing her hand. I'm not real sure what aspect is being asked there, but uh, uh, it's hard for us to look at a lot of the Old Testament things, for me anyway, and always fully understand there were many things that uh, that were there that they were governed by, that they were ruled by, that would seem very strange to us that live under grace um, because we're not under that law. Um, but... Uh, yeah, if, if whoever put it, if, if they want to come in and, and, and speak specifically, if you don't want to uh, do it publicly, I'm, I'd be glad, certainly. And I know Brother uh, Ryan would to, to speak to you about it, but I'm, you know, again, not sure what all that you're really asking there. Uh, maybe if you want to read uh, Matthew sixteen twenty seven, The Bible often talks about reward for works. For example, Matthew sixteen twenty seven. Could you speculate... As to what this reward would look like, the Bible often mentions greater or lesser rewards too. How could this work out in heaven? Because all there will experience the greatest reward of an eternity with the Lord. Verse twenty-seven says, "For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to his works." Of course, this is, I believe, speaking of the great, I mean, the uh, Bema seat, not the great white throne. So it's mm -hmm. talking about believers. So um, 
so he shall receive a reward according to his works. Um, you go to Revelation chapter four, and we're going—he's going, you know—we're going to have crowns. You can go through the New Testament. And there's five mentioned, um, depending on different um, areas of life, um, how much you're looking for the Lord's return, um, how much of a um, a witness you've been, um, how and how much endurance you've had. Different different crowns for different. Areas, and ultimately we'll be given those crowns. First uh, Corinthians three, um, you know, uh, talking about the judgment seat of Christ. Ultimately, Revelation chapter four, uh, the the last five verses talk about we'll cast we'll cast our crowns back at His feet. So uh, the rewards that we receive are not going to be kept; they're going to be returned to Jesus Christ. So, hope that answers that. Yeah, I think most, you know, one of the interesting things you'll find when you look at both judgments, uh, judgment seat of Christ and, and, of course, the great white throne judgment, you, you'll find that in both places that works are mentioned as far as being judged for them. Um, but that's not what you're being judged as far as on the basis of where you're going to spend eternity. Your works doesn't come into that judgment. But certainly we find that according to those works, as was talked about in one of the sermons, whether they are done for the right reasons, that they are going to be true rewards, or whether they're done for the wrong reasons. We also find that the Bible clearly teaches us that as all the lost people stand before the great white throne, that uh, everybody's not going to be judged the same because uh, some people deserve harsher punishment than others. God is just in all of that. They will be judged for their works, not as to where they're going to spend eternity, but uh, to what they're going to receive when they reach that place. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think part of that came into what what Brian mentioned already, uh, and uh, and that's the fact that uh, you know when we get to heaven, there will no longer be that selfishness that we have in the flesh. And I believe that when we look at everything that's there, that that whatever that we are rewarded with at the judgment seat of Christ when we are there, that all the desire that we're going to have is to be able to present that the one that we owe everything to, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe the greatest the greatest heartache is is the fact that uh, that we have little to present to Him. Um, now, you know, there's there's a lot of things, a lot of questions. We don't know all the answers, and we can piece all these things together. And if you take a literal interpretation of the Scripture as as, as we do, then uh, you find that when, uh, when it comes right down to the end, uh, it's not until following all the judgments, not until following all those that have been cast into the lake of fire and all that is done, that the Bible says that he'll dry every tear from our eye. I believe that's going to become something that we'll never remember. It's going to be heartbreaking to see people. Nobody's going to enjoy seeing what is going on there. Folks, once we're in eternity with him, then I don't know how it's all going to work, but from all I can gather, we're going to have no memories of those bad things. There will be nothing in our lives that can bring sadness. There will certainly be no divisions as to uh, who's got the biggest house or the finest car or gets the most chicken to eat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I think the, the tragedy in all these, these works in heaven is when we arrive is that I, I, don't, I believe that anybody that's there, they're only going to have one desire with, with whatever rewards they have, and that is to present them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I, think what's, uh, I think what's pretty cool about the Bema Seat is when we do get there and we receive rewards, which... I mean, it's clear it talks about we're going to receive crowns Amen. for what we've done. But I think what's pretty cool about heaven is when we get there that we're, we all come into subjection to the God of creation and everybody t takes every crown that they would have if you get all five, praise the Lord. It, I mean, it really ain't going to matter at that point because we're ultimately all going to be made back down to equal because we all cast everything that we have, we've got back at his feet. So we're all back to, to equal. You know, and again, you don't 
you don't compare. You're not going to compare, but you're not going to have the same mind that you have here when you're, you're going to be glorified. So you're not going to have those ulterior motives of, well, you know, I've got to keep up with Evie. You know, even our, if she's got more than I got, then I got to try to, I got to try to meet that standard. See, we'll be casting everything we got back at Jesus' feet. I mean, that's, that's just, that's awesome, hmm. I think. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm looking forward to giving, I'm look, I mean, we all, if we're in service, we've given a portion, but we don't know what it's like to give all. Jesus gave it all, and we're going to have the chance to give it back to it, you know, to give something back to him. And uh, quit making me cry. I think it'll be the, probably the first time ever that you can even know what that feeling is to genuinely have absolutely no reservations on anything that you have. Nice and loud, Ramani. It's called heavenly language. Yeah, there, there, there's, a, there's a great research that goes into this that believes that, that most likely it's going it's to be Carolinian. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, scripture don't, the Scripture don't tell us anything no. of that. We know, we know that again. But we'll be, we'll be singing. I mean, we're going to sing, and, and, and I guess... We're going to be singing and praising. <laughs> it says, and in, 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 in we're going to rule and reign with Christ, and it says that they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy, you know, to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. And it says that of every tongue, kindred, and nation. Um, Revelation 19 says, and, and after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia. You know, that's an international word. You say that anywhere on the face of the earth, people know what you mean. It's praise you, the Lord. Uh, I don't know. It might be Hebrew. Panos is probably hoping it's Greek. I hope it's hillbilly because I'm a hillbilly. No, but I don't know. Um, but I know we'll understand because it says, now we see through a glass darkly, 1 Corinthians 13, but then face to face we'll know even as we're known. So we'll be able to fully comprehend. Isn't that going to be great? You don't have to go to linguistic school, and you'll understand every language. One of the interesting things about that, too, Ramani, is that uh, there's a lot of controversy today over over the subject. But if you look on the day of Pentecost when uh, uh, when they spoke in tongues, uh, it wasn't a question of somebody speaking and somebody not being able to understand them. Um, one man spoke, and everybody understood in their own language. Uh, he was speaking in one language, and everybody was understanding in their own. Uh, so when it when it comes to to God, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of things He can do, and we don't know. But you know, it uh, uh, is everybody going to be speaking and hearing the same language, or will it be like the day of Pentecost when you speak and everybody understands in their own language? I don't know, but there's definitely going to uh, uh, to be an understanding that's there. Rosemary, did you have something different there? I saw your hand going back up. Well, yeah. When you, again, if you believe in a literal interpretation like we do, the moment the rapture takes place, the body says you're going to be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. You're going to have a new body. You're going to have a glorified body for the first time. That's why the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and then we which remain will join them in the air. And then the Bible says we'll be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, and he, he literally goes on to say that uh, that the mortal should put on immortality um, and that that new body. So you'll you'll have a glorified body when you get to heaven. You're gonna you're gonna get it on the way between here and there. Amen. <laughs> there won't be the same relationship because when the, when the Sadducees and Pharisees questioned him about the resurrection, you know, they were asking, "Well, what about marriage?" And will I know? You know, he said, "You know, it's not gonna be the same relationship." You know, in heaven, uh, there is no marriage. I mean. Because we are the bride and he's the bridegroom. You know, we're married to the Son of God. But even on that same point, and very quickly, I was thinking, you know, years ago, what about, what about the present state of the saints now in heaven? Because if our soul and spirit once were absent from the body, present with the Lord, is there just a bunch of souls and spirits floating around in heaven, you know, with no body? Well, I really believe you take on some type of temporal body while you're there waiting for your your what's in the grave to be rejoined and be glorified because on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
when Peter saw three, he saw Jesus. Yeah, and Moses, and he recognized them. They recognized who they were. So obviously, they had taken on some type of form. So I really believe that you take on some type of temporal form until the you know the glorification process that takes place when the body and the soul, huh? Yeah, like you hire, yeah, you a car hire. You know, you hire a car. No. If non-Christians pray and believe in God, will they receive blessings and have their prayers answered? Simple answer, no. I believe the first prayer that God promises to hear and answer is that prayer for forgiveness, the prayer of repentance. Does God know what they're saying? Yeah, he knows what they're saying. Do they have a promise of prayer being answered? None whatsoever that I see in Scripture. The child of God has that promise. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between man and God. And uh, and so, I mean, I know I've the same thing. I know a lot, a lot of lost people that talk about praying every day and praying and praying. But uh, you don't you don't have access to God the Father except through Jesus Christ. And so and so, therefore, though we know that He is an omniscient God that knows all things your access to the throne room, even to come boldly before the throne, the Bible teaches us very clearly, is in Jesus Christ. And uh, so uh, I believe that it's the, the, the prayer for forgiveness of a repentant soul that is the first prayer that God promises to answer. And after that, he promises to hear and answer all your prayers. Amen. The question says, can someone be saved without evidence? Well, I'll, I'll just say simple, and I'll let Brother Brian go. I mean, you know, for by grace are you saved through faith. Um, of course, the Bible goes on to teach us that uh, even that faith, he says, that it's not our own, that it's a gift, lest any man should boast. We can't even brag about having faith. Um, the Bible also tells that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Um you know, faith is not about evidence. I'm not sure, you know, can someone be saved without evidence? Absolutely, wholeheartedly, completely, uh, but not without faith. God's grace is the only thing that saves anybody. And and again, I've, I've taught our people time and again here at Bethel, there is only, you can call it one pathway, one road, one way, one access, whatever. For us to get into God's grace, which is the only place of salvation, that's the pathway of faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. And uh, the faith is the substance of things hoped for. I think if you look at that word, you'll find that literally it's the very support. There is no hope without it. Uh, it is the very substance. If you take away the faith, hope cannot exist. It cannot stand. There's nothing to support it. It is that faith that then becomes the evidence of things not seen, that we cannot see. And yet people's faith in action will be what people will see, the results of that uh, of that faith working. So, I'm, you know, can someone be saved without evidence? I'm, I'm not 100% sure what, what's, what's being asked there. Um, but, yes, you don't have to have evidence, but you've got to have faith. And I believe that that faith working in your life will become the evidence. I don't think I've, 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 I've talked to a couple this weekend I don't think anybody's saved by accident. I don't think anybody grows into salvation without realizing it. Everywhere I find in Scripture, number one, you can't be saved without repentance. When you come to recognize and see sin as God sees it, there is an about face. There is a complete going the opposite direction, turning from that sin to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think you do that by accident. I believe that, uh, again, the Bible is very clear. We're not talking about emotionalism and, and experiences and, and, and things like this. But I believe everywhere in Scripture that man is commanded to repent, that man is commanded to, uh, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and all these things that uh, something takes place. The Bible calls that a new birth, a new creation. Uh, you must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Um, so if it's without evidence, 
I, I, I don't think so. I don't think that you can be a new creation, that old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new, and there not be evidence there. Um, and that fruit comes through. I think the fruit can be on all kinds of different levels. You're going to see a whole lot more of the fruits when you see the fruit of the Spirit of somebody that's filled and controlled by the Spirit of God than somebody that's not. A Christian, you know, I think it was, it might have been you that talked about some of these terms, you know, that just absolutely, you know, make no sense at all. One of them I hear so many times that to me, you know, it, they makes absolutely no sense, and that's a carnal Christian. You know, I don't believe there's, you can't be a carnal Christian. You can be a carnal or a Christian. Um, but a Christian is to be Christ-like. You can't be carnal and be Christ-like at the same time. It's an impossibility. And uh, so I'm not sure, again, which way that the, that the maybe it was being asked in the way that Tenicus thought. I, I, believe that, uh, I believe that if you are saved, if you're born again, there's going to have to be a point in your life when you have personally humbled yourself and asked God to forgive you based solely and totally upon what Jesus Christ did for you at Calvary and when he rose again the third day. You can be in a Christian home. You can be in a Christian church. You can try to live a Christian life to the best of your ability all your life and all of these things. But unless somewhere, you know, I don't care if you can start today and live the rest of your life without ever committing another sin. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What about the past sin? That one that you committed in all your life because you're the best person that ever lived. But if you committed one sin, many times we look, you know, it was when sin entered in to the garden that death came with it. You can't have sin without death. One sin in heaven, there would be no heaven there would be no eternal life because death would enter in with that sin. For a believer that that committed a sin, <coughs> well, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm asking in, uh, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that probably I don't believe in sinless perfection. I believe that every believer is going to commit a sin at some point. Um, I believe that that's where the Holy Spirit will bear witness with us, and there's a big difference that without that, I do not believe that a truly born-again child of God can sin and continue to sin and continue to sin and live in sin. Uh, when we speak of uh, the eternal security of the believer, which we hold to, that's not a license to sin. Um, I genuinely believe that the perseverance of the saints is not us hanging on. It's the fact that if you've truly been born again, if, if God through the Holy Spirit lives in your life, you will persevere. Remember this, folks. Your flesh can do anything as a child of God that the sinner's flesh can do. But you can't keep on doing it, and you can't stay there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you find you know, a, a horrible sin that was taking place within the church when it seems that one was having an adulterous relationship with his stepmother. Well, Paul, first of all, really comes down on them because of allowing this sin to take place and the church doing nothing about it, sitting back and just watching it. But he talks of that one being turned over to Satan for destruction of the flesh that the soul might be saved in the day of the Lord. A child of God cannot sin and continue in sin. If he does, then I believe that what we see there is that there is that possibility even of God taking them from this world because, you know, anybody that, that will sin and not do something about that sin, they have no testimony. They're not going to be able to be of any effect for the Lord. But I believe with all my heart that if you truly are a child of God, when you sin, you're going to be convicted. And the desire is going to be to go to God and get forgiveness for that sin, not to continue in that sin. I hope, I hope that... Yeah, the, pro the problem is, you know, what we... I mean, the Bible speaks of, of knowing a tree by the fruit that it bears and all of these things. The problem is none of us can see another man's heart. None of us can judge another man as to whether he is saved or not. But yet, even as a church, we have a responsibility to pass that judgment, if you would, upon the fruits and the evidence of that Christian's life. If, a, if an individual that is claiming to be a Christian, that is between him and God as to whether he is or not, but if he is living a sinful, ungodly life, then he should not be allowed to be able to participate as a member of the body of Christ which is representing Jesus Christ on, on, on this earth. And so you can look at my life and you can see that uh, 
there's going to be some kind of fruit there. But that doesn't really tell you what's in my heart. I can, I can put forth some false fruit. Uh, there are many, many, many hypocrites in Scripture. Uh, the Bible speaks of the tare and the wheat, and, and, you know, it's not our responsibility to try to separate the two. God will take care of that when he, when he, when he returns. But we do have a responsibility in our Christian lives to, to live in a way that we have testimonies for the Lord. And even as God's people upon this earth, we have a responsibility that when sin is in our presence, it needs to be dealt with. We can only, we can only judge the fruit that is there. We can never judge a soul. We can never know. As a matter of fact, even, even as a pastor, I can assure you that one of the hardest things, the hardest things, and I think that Brother Brian will agree, that I have ever had to do in my life is to go through church discipline with someone that was a member of the congregation that was choosing to continue in sin and not deal with that sin. And after begging with them and pleading with them and going with them with, with others and trying and trying over and over to somehow see that one restored and they refused to, to have to see them dismissed from being an active member of that body. That is a hard, hard, hard thing to do. But we must always remember, even in that case, my prayer and my heart is that they really are saved. And that some way, somehow, something, as a matter of fact, the whole purpose of church discipline is that they understand the importance of it and be restored back to the situation that they were. So we can always hold out that hope that somebody's really saved, but we can only see the fruit as to whether that evidence is being seen there or not. Scripture says, "Let work out your salvation with fear and trembling." It don't mean you you work for it. You let it you let it you let it work itself out. And it will. And it will evidence itself in, you know, an apple tree bears apples, an orange tree bears oranges. And, and, and by the way, you don't see apple trees and orange trees and anything in an orchard, by the way, a grapevine struggling to put on grapes or apples or oranges. It just bears the fruit. It don't produce it. It just bears it. So I think once a person is a believer... There ought to be some genuine evidence there that you, I mean, that you love God, that you're at least trying to live for Jesus Christ. There ought to be some evidence there. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. New creature's going to act different than an old creature. So. Anybody here ever backslid? Well, we got a spiritual group can, here. Can, can, can you tell the difference in a backslider and a lost person? In looking at their lives, I, I probably did a better job of being ungodly than most of the lost people did when I was running from the Lord. I'm, I'm not proud of those, but I'm just saying I, I learned one thing for sure, that as a Christian, as a believer, my flesh was not above just about any sin that could be imaginable, but God's grace was bigger in the end. I do not for a moment. Matter of fact, I believe with everything within me, and you can disagree or you can think it's crazy or what. I believe with everything within me the Sunday morning when God got a hold of my heart as a 21-year-old man, as a backslidden Christian, I believed when I stood there gripping. And, you know, to this day, folks, yes, it was emotional, traumatic experience, but that's not what made the difference in my life. I can remember standing there determined with everything within me that nothing was going to make me pray that day. I don't even know how I got from that pew to that altar, but I remember when everything within me was screaming out for that forgiveness, and I believed with everything within me. I believed that was my last opportunity on the face of this earth because my sin was so real before my life and what I deserved for that sin was so real before my life that I believed that if I didn't do something about it right then, I was finished. I was finished. But the simple truth is, boy, if you'd seen my life for a couple of years, <laughs> there was nothing there that would have made you think that I was a child of God. Nothing. But I still was. God's grace was sufficient, and God's grace brought me back again. But we have to be very careful. We can, we can look at a person's life and see if they're living a godly or ungodly life. We never, ever, ever know. I used to avoid those Christian young men on the, on the, on the Air Force Base like they had the plague because I knew what it was going to do to me inside when, when I saw their lives, when they faced me and when they were a witness to me. Romani? Well, everything that we've talked about this weekend is a, you know, is a direct reflection of the, to answer your question. I Let's be honest. We've all 
at one time or another in our life given great occasion for like David, like Nathan told David, we've given great occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme, to laugh and go, <laughs> if they're a Christian, and I sure don't want that. I already got that. I don't need that. I mean, let's be honest. Well, how do you how do you overcome that? You can't live in the past. You can't worry about what somebody um, what somebody's estimation of you is. Matthew Henry said, if we uh, do what we do for the approval of God, we need never fear the reproach or censure of man. So what we do for God, we've got to live in the present, can't live in the past. Paul said this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before, press toward the mark. So, yeah, you just got to, you know, Paul was big about preaching, about canceling the past, making sure you cancel the past. Now, I've heard a lot of people say this. And there may be a young person here saying this. I've gotten forgiveness from God. I've gotten forgiveness from dad and mom. I've gotten forgiveness from all my friends. But there's one person I just can't forget, get forgiveness from, and that's myself. I can't forgive myself. But can I say this? The authority of the Word of God says you, don't, you, don't, you can't forgive yourself. You don't have the authority to do that. That's why you have to accept forgiveness. You can't achieve it. You can't achieve it. There's nothing you can do. You just have to accept the free gift. Same thing with righteousness. And so, yeah, Romani, I think you just have to cancel all the past and, 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 and the future and the promises of God are bright. I think, I think it's hard for any Christian when I think the first step, brother, is the first step on the road to recovery is recognizing, you know, even when, as was mentioned in one of the messages this weekend, you know, when John was writing to the church in Revelation and they'd lost their first love. Um, and a lot of times that, that needs rejuvenating, but, you know, it's the same thing between, just like between a husband and a wife. We've heard this weekend, love is about action. You know, you you if you find that your relationship with your wife is not what it ought to be, it takes some action. Just sitting back and knowing it and doing nothing about it is not going to help it. And uh, I think a lot of times it's hard for anybody to look at another individual and say, this is how to put the passion back in your life. But I think it really comes down to the whole subject of this weekend. It really comes down to the love, what things, something's holding your passions. Uh, for some people it's work, for some people it's their homes, for some people it's their possessions. Um, and I'm saying if we recognize that Jesus Christ doesn't have that priority in our lives, then we need to start doing some shifting and, and, and do what we can to give him that priority. Um, but thank God that if it's not that you recognize it and just uh, don't leave it to take care of itself. Uh, you know, when you truly love someone, uh, one of the greatest ways to love them more is to show the love that you already have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you show that love, then it's amazing how that, that love will grow uh, and grow. And so I'd say with whatever passion you have, show the Lord just how much you really love him. And as you start showing him how much you love him, you probably recognize his love more and that love can grow again. But just sitting and worrying about it won't, uh, won't fix it for sure. Uh, it doesn't hurt to be around others that have a passion as well. Uh, it's just like anything else. You get around people that are passionate, it tends to rub off. You get around a bunch of boring people and you just tend to get bored to death. <laughs> Is the image of Christ classed as an idol? Well, I, I you know, again, Brother Brian, I guess, I guess the thing is, number one, the thing that I dislike most about any picture or image of Jesus Christ is nobody, nobody knows what he looks like. So it's not a, it's not a correct image in the first place. Uh, this is the only image we have of Christ. Uh, the Bible gives us images even like, uh, I believe he gives them to us in the ordinances. Uh, whether it be baptism or the Lord's table, I believe are the two ordinances that he's given to the church. Uh, and that is something to give us a picture, a remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but if I, if I understand what you're asking correctly, 
Um, I, guess, I guess a lot comes down to, to motive. I, I don't like pictures of Christ personally. I don't like crucifixes that have Christ hanging on there. Um, but I think, you know, where it really becomes an idol is uh, that whether it's Jesus or anything else, if you start paying homage to it in any way, shape, or form, uh, then it's taking that place of importance that, yes, it becomes an idol. Uh, idols don't have to be physical either, by the way. Uh, you can have idols in your mind without them ever, ever uh, surfacing. So I'm not sure, again, uh, uh, yeah, I don't... If you're bowing down and praying something, you know, I don't care what it is, even Jesus, you know, that... Uh, but uh, but if, if you allow anything to take the place of homage in your life, then it's, it's becoming an idol. Top three principles that you enforce to a new believer. Um, well, I'd say first of all that here at Bethel, that for anyone that comes to Christ as a new believer, um, we have a simple discipleship program that goes through not, not three, but probably more like a dozen to 15 of the very foundational principles in a Christian's life uh, to begin building upon. Uh, sometimes it's sometimes it's easy for us as Christians that have been saved a long time to uh, just take for granted <laughs> some of the simplest things about the Christian life. Um, you know, I, I, I would say to anyone that the first thing that they should learn to do as far as practices in their life is that. If they're going to grow, if they're going to be nourished, they're going to have to spend time with God. I don't care if you've been saved for one day, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Uh, time and time and time again, it's the simple things in your life. You're spending time with God in His Word and on your knees before Him. Nothing in all the world will replace that in your life. You'll never be a strong Christian if you're not reading his word and if you're not praying to him, you've got to communicate with him. There's so many things that come in after that. And, of course, you know, Christian fellowship for a new Christian would be one. Right. You know, sometimes you, you can't keep running with the same crowd that's doing all the same old things. You need to start being around people that love the Lord like you love him. Uh, you still love your old friends, but your greatest desire for them should be to come to know the Christ that you know. If you're with them for other reasons, to enjoy their sin or whatever, then it's all wrong. So, uh, um, again, I would say that hopefully one of the first things, you need, you need to be part of a body of believers. You need to be reading your Bible. You need to be praying. And hopefully through that body of believers you would begin a personal discipleship program that is so vital, I believe, in Scripture, but is so overlooked by so many today that you can begin to understand a lot of the very basics and basis of, of the Christian life. Uh, three, devotion, devotion, yeah, devotion, which is time spent with Jesus, uh, communication, Lord's the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. So we go through prayer and then promotion. So and you say promotion. Yeah. Learn how to share Jesus with your friends. Learn how to promote him and not just your church. You know, come to our church, man. We got a lot going on. Uh, uh, I want people to come to our church because they can meet Jesus there. And the only way people are going to meet Jesus is through us. You know, so so devotion, communication, and promotion. Okay, this one's specifically for you, brother. He says, uh, Brian, I would love to hear your testimony of how you were saved and how God used the ministry of the Gideons in this. Um, 1987, uh, let me go back a couple years real quick. 1985, um, I went to Secular University and played uh, golf on a scholarship. Um the Lord blessed me with a talent, and I used it, but I worshipped it. And, I, you know, we, we worship sports. Guys do it a lot. I, well, that was my God, and that's all I did. And, uh, long, and long and short of all of it, I, while, I was at, while I was in secular university, um, my grades got so bad that they put me on academic probation, which, in turn, uh, put me on campus instead of traveling with the team. 
And so I got to a point in my life, now I wasn't a Christian, so I got to the point in my life where I said, if I can't play golf, then I don't need to be in school. So I quit, and I broke my mom's heart, wasted a lot of people's money, and wasted a great opportunity. But God in his providence, he returns beauty for ashes. And so through my mess-ups and my mistakes, uh, I went and talked to a recruiter, and I joined the United States Marine Corps. Uh, two years after this took place in 1986, I I went in and uh, on my way on my way to Paris Island, uh, which you don't even know where that's at. Most of you probably don't even never heard of it. That's one of the Marine Corps recruit depots in the United States. There's two of them: one on the east coast and one on the west. I went to the east coast uh, boot camp. On my way there. Uh, I knew four months, four months boot camp, four months. And uh, I knew that uh, when I was there that we weren't going to have the uh, the luxuries of Snicker bars and Coca-Colas. <laughs> you know, that's just not good for training purposes. But I knew we weren't going to get that, so I said, I'm going to get me one last Snicker bar and one last Coca-Cola. Hallelujah. And so I'm going to enjoy this thing. And I went and got me one, and on my way back to the bus – a gentleman tapped me on the shoulder and he said, son, you going, you going to the Marine Corps? And I said, yes, sir. He said, I want you to take this and I want you to read it. And he gave me a New Testament and it had a gospel track in it. I did not know at the time he was a Gideon. I didn't even know what the Gideons were. But I began to read that little New Testament and I went to church all my life. I was raised religious. And so I knew enough of the Bible uh, to, to respect it. So... Um, I started reading where the gospel tract was stuck. Guess where it was stuck? Right in the book of Romans. <laughs> started reading the book of Romans. I got under conviction, and somebody asked me who led me to Christ. I said a Gideon was led by the Holy Spirit to give me a Bible, and the Holy Spirit took that Bible and led me to Jesus. And I, I didn't know what happened to me until I got out of boot camp and I went to to uh, Camp Lejeune, and I was there on active duty, and I was bunked. And this is how good good God is and how much of a hum sense of humor he's got. I got bunked with John the Baptist. I'm not lying. This guy would get in the middle of the, of the uh, squad bay. He'd get in the middle of the dorm, and he would shout. I mean, I was like, this guy's crazy. Now I'm doing what he does. I said, this guy's nuts. He's got up here, and, man, he's screaming to all of us and shouting about Jesus loves us, and, and, and man, I was like, whoa. And he asked me if I've ever been saved, and I told him what happened to me, and he started crying, and he said, man, you were born again. And uh, he began to disciple me and, and, and help me, and, uh, and here I am because of a Gideon.